0: What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity
1: use all day, every day. It necessitates policy change. It necessitates market intervention. And that necessitates coalition building. And that's what's different. Caroline Gollin is the
0: Global Head of Energy Markets and Policy at Google. Later in the show, she'll describe the four policy areas that will drive rapid decarbonization of the world's grids. For more information on Google's Zero Carbon Goals, go to g.co forward slash carbon free by
1: 2030.
0: I heard your kids destroyed your microphone.
2: Yeah, it, literal destruction. My one-year-old. If you've seen one of these snowball microphones, they have these these tripods, and it's I guess it's fun to smash against concrete.
0: <laughs> wow, concrete! They made it outside with it. Impressive. Well,
2: no, it's in the basement. Uh, okay. My my now new home, COVID home office, and the microphone has been sitting there until the one-year-old grabbed it.
0: I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality.
2: 90%
0: of Americans want to see more renewable energy on the grid. But two thirds of us can't directly access wind and solar, either because we don't own our own rooftop, can't afford the upfront cost, or can't get it from our monopoly utilities. Most of us are locked in a relationship with utilities that limit clean energy options for our homes. Democratizing access to clean power, enabling us to choose where our electricity comes from, no matter where we live, can play a key role in decarbonizing the grid. And that is where our guest Kiran Batraju comes in.
2: And we started Arcadia to give everyone access to clean energy. It was as simple as that. This is a very closed, balkanized industry. And so the core idea was build technology to make it incredibly simple for anyone that pays a power bill to access clean energy.
0: Kieran is the co-founder and CEO of Arcadia. Arcadia is a service that connects people across the country to solar and other renewable energy projects. Virtually anywhere in the country, anyone can sign on to the platform and subscribe to Community Solar or buy zero carbon power. The company's mission is to make these subscriptions as simple, transparent and equitable as possible and to decarbonize grids as quickly as possible.
2: We are a software business that looks more like a marketplace in energy. Really, the biggest part of the business today is Community Solar. So we work with dozens of developers who build large multi-megawatt projects, and we're able to bring that cheaper, cleaner energy to consumers. The customer doesn't have to do anything, which is a very unique thing to say in Energy Broadly. It is guaranteed to be cheaper than the utility account.
0: Today, Arcadia has hundreds of thousands of customers in every corner of the country. And in mid-September, the company closed a $100 million Series D funding round. It will use that capital to expand community solar options and help people make clean energy decisions. The idea for Arcadia that everyone should have easy access to 24-7 carbon-free power was rooted in Kieran's upbringing in the heart of Kentucky coal country.
2: You'd look, you'd drive through the highways and look at the mountains, and it would be mountain, mountain, blown off, mountain, mountain. And you still see that all the way through West Virginia and eastern Kentucky.
0: Kieran grew up with the coal industry all around him. Some of the influence was positive. Little League sponsorships, town services from taxes, lots of jobs. But the destructive side was also visible. Blown up mountains, poor water quality, sickness.
2: There were times near the end of high school where the water wasn't drinkable for days and in surrounding counties. In Martin County, you still can't drink the water today. My dad treated black lung patients, coal was everywhere.
0: In the decades since Kieran left Eastern Kentucky for college, he's watched towns across Appalachia get hollowed out as the coal industry shrinks. It has left communities with a stark choice about how to diversify their economies and what energy sources will fuel their lives moving
2: forward. Everyone might assume that, you know, people in, in these parts of the country are, are just in love with coal, which is not the case. It, it definitely, especially more recently, like there's such a clear understanding that all communities and in, in especially Eastern Kentucky need to transition, need to find what's next, need to have a diverse economy. That narrative just gets lost a little bit, and um, people tend to think it's just a a monolith.
0: Kieran is building a vision for the zero-carbon economy that will benefit everyone everywhere, including the places where it seemed like coal would be king forever. I spoke with Kieran about his own transition from entering politics to authoring a book to raising over $180 million for his entrepreneurial vision. We talked about the anxieties and exhilaration of building a company, along with the ever-present data and regulatory challenges that Arcadia contends with in the electricity business. We started with his childhood in Kentucky. What was your experience like as an Indian American kid growing up in the heart of coal country?
2: Yeah, it was it was definitely different than maybe other um, brown kids across the U.S. So, so Pikeville... It was a town of six thousand it's in this hamlet you know cut in between the mountains right near the border of West Virginia. You know it was known actually for the second largest land mass movement behind the panama canal is is in my hometown. You know there was a railroad that went through it that sent coal through and um yeah, it was a pretty unique place for my parents to settle my My dad was a doctor uh, is a doctor, and there's an amazing story of just Indian American doctors landing in small town America all over the South uh, because they needed the doctors. Uh, And there's actually, uh, my dad got recruited by a series of doctors from a very specific medical school in India from Guntur Medical College to come to Pikeville and be one of the few vascular surgeons for like a two uh, hour radius. And my mom loved the mountains and they stayed.
0: What do you think people get wrong about coal country?
2: I mean, so much like it's a dynamic place, right? Like my family story is an amazing, like the town was, and and the region was so good to my family. And I think people hear that and they, they, it just doesn't square with whatever they understand. And they may have read J.D. Vance's book and they think um, the culture is, is monolithic and maybe backward, but it's just so far from the truth. I mean, there, there's so much creativity and dynamism in the mountains that just doesn't get talked about uh, as much, doesn't get, the airtime, right, that the easy narratives do. And so it's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful place, I think, for people that have actually driven through parts of East Tennessee, West Virginia, and Eastern Kentucky. Like, it's absolutely gorgeous, uh, those parts of Appalachia.
0: You left Kentucky for college and went to the University of Pennsylvania, where you did not focus on energy, but rather politics. Why politics?
2: Yeah, I grew up in a household where Politics was always spoken at at the dinner table. We were always talking about what was happening in the world. It was always driven by big ideas. And, you know, I think part of it was growing up in a place that just felt so foreign, even in uh, our own country, right? I mean, even in Philadelphia, I showed up a brown kid with an accent. And, uh, you know, that alone was like bizarre for most people. And then just squaring away the two worlds I was getting exposed to just made me realize how there were, there was just so much about how the country was run, where resources go, where capital goes, where opportunity lies. And again, I I grew up, you know, with immigrant parents who were incredibly politically engaged. I went to my first uh, political rally for Clinton Gore in 92 in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, How old are you? uh, Six. (laughs) And so I was I was just always interested in big ideas and, and policy and politics seemed like the thing to, to study and, you know, maybe work on in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Your next move then makes sense because you moved to Washington, D.C., where you were a legislative director on Capitol Hill. How did that experience open your career to the world of energy?
2: Yeah, it was just such an incredible experience in education. In a lot of ways, it was a startup. I joined an office uh, for Congressman John Yarmuth, who got elected in the 06 wave of, of Democrats. It was all very new to him. It was new to me. It was new to everyone. I was 21. I actually hadn't even graduated college yet. Oh,
0: that's right. You left college early, right?
2: Yeah. Th- this was a tough decision. I got this incredible job and opportunity, and I had a semester left, and I had credit. Did you
0: apply to it? Or were you like, I kind of want to do this and not finish school? Or did it come to you and then you made the decision?
2: Oh, I called everyone and their mother (laughs) that could maybe, you know, send a note to the congressman. It was, I mean, we had this uh, progressive anti-war Democrat getting elected out of Louisville, Kentucky. It was like such an incredible thing. And I I wanted to, you know, I wanted to maybe go to D.C. And this just felt like, you know, maybe third degree connection. I could find someone that could get me at least an ability to, them to consider me i didn't actually think i would get a job and i remember specifically interviewing for the job uh, it was me the chief of staff and the congressman and the chief of staff was just the most painful questions i knew nothing about like how does a bill become a law other than uh schoolhouse rot? like give me <laughs> details on what you would do in x y and z situation i had no idea and at one point, the congressman just stopped and said, yeah, I wouldn't have known any of that stuff at 21 either. But you seem like a smart kid and, and ready to work. So so I got the job, but I, I hadn't graduated. And you get elected in November, you got to start building your office. And you know the first votes are going to be pretty soon after in January. So I had to make that decision. and I just couldn't. I'm so glad I didn't pass it up. It was the most incredible experience to be just thrown in you know, trial by fire, learning with the congressman. It was an incredible office with, with really amazing individuals. I met my wife in that office, so it was, uh, it was a special experience all around.
0: And you eventually graduated, but later. Yeah, it's, it's
2: right. not a wonderful story if you ask my parents, but eventually <laughs> I was able to get the, the creditor to, and I actually walked with my class, which was really special. So I do have a college degree.
0: <laughs> you know, not, I think they're often overrated. I'm guessing most people don't know this about you. I certainly didn't. You are not only a startup founder, but you're also an author. And you wrote a book called Mud Creek Medicine about a community activist in Appalachia named Eula Hall. What drew you to her story?
2: So much. So, I mean, again, growing up in a, a place like Eastern Kentucky, it's just it's, it actually is just such a special place, I think, in, in the American story. You know, Eula was an entrepreneur And just this incredible woman in a town called Mud Creek, Kentucky, who built one of the first community health centers in the region. And she had little to no education, um, had been through abusive relationships, had a very tough, impoverished life, but decided to do this thing for a community. And my father actually worked in the clinic. You know, I remember we were starting to talk about health reform in Congress. And I remember talking, my, my boss, uh, Congressman Yarmouth uh, was a writer himself. And I remember just talking about how there are these incredible human stories and how important it is to tell these stories. And I just got the bug. I, you know, it was it was she had such an incredible life and story that if I could get the chance to, to write it and that she would trust me with it, mm-hmm. that I should I should do that. Mm-hmm. She had actually sued a few people who tried to write a movie about her life, but it was, again, a lot of the stereotypes of like, you know, foaming at the mouth, running around without the shoes on type thing. And you know the thing is I actually knew her, my family knew her. And so, yeah, it was an incredible experience and very lonely at times, but I'm so glad that that's out in the world. And I still, Yula actually passed away recently, sadly, but I, you know, her life now I think is cemented and I'm glad that story can, can live on. She has inspired so many people in the region. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it it was, for a long time, I thought I could be a writer. And I learned how difficult that actually is.
0: (laughs) So you decided to be a startup founder instead.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You know, a lot of this story might just sound like masochism, but yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) it, All these things, you know, even working in the congressman's office, they all felt like very new things that I was throwing myself into. And I think that was exciting.
0: Speaking of new things, you made the pivot from politics and writing legislation to writing a business plan and starting a company in energy. Where did the idea for Arcadia come from? Uh, What were the macro trends that were enabling you to feel like this is a good idea?
2: Yeah. So I left the hill. I say I left the circus is the way I like to put it. I think the circus has gotten a little more circusy since Uh, to actually join a couple of friends and start a company even before Arcadia in energy. And at the time, even then, it was like all the same tailwinds that I think we talk about today. I mean, uh, it was just the writing was on the wall to me broadly about decarbonization. It had to happen. Maybe more importantly, utility monopolies and the monopoly structure was getting unbundled. And I think that unbundling was going to happen at a faster and faster pace and bringing a sense of customer centricity. And so I helped found a company called American Efficient, where we were actually trying to sell software to utilities to help them do rebate programs around energy efficiency. And, you know, I'd learned a lot about utilities and the utility structure working on Capitol Hill, but until you try to sell them something that they, that is just not part of their business model, do you really understand like the incentives for a business that lives on return on equity is focused on the regulator doing something for the consumer is not necessarily where a lot of attention gets paid or where uh, money goes and so it was a it was a painful education super exciting because we were starting something new and and I was learning a ton about building a business but you know learned a lot about sort of the limits of the that unbundling and and that change in the system coming from the incumbents, and we eventually uh, actually had a business where we would capture energy efficiency savings and go straight to capacity markets, which I think you're seeing a lot of innovation around today. Um, but uh, you know, ended up selling that business, got the idea for Arcadia, where it was it was the same tailwinds, the same broad ideas around getting closer to the customer decarbonization choice access you know how do we unbundle the utility and i wanted to do that in a more direct to consumer fashion i think i was seeing a lot of what was happening across different sectors specifically fintech where you had an incumbent but you had new entrants that were building a new model going direct to consumer understanding that customer giving them the things that they never had access to which is so much more important in our sector in my opinion because of the world being on fire and It was the idea of using software to unlock that. I think one of the big things from the early days of the company (laughs) that was sort of the core insight, but it just becomes more apparent day after day is like the customer may not be so important to utilities and utility executives and the way they think about the business and how they make money, but it's such a big lever to shift markets. Because that same consumer can take an action to do something like community solar and that same consumer can go and talk to the regulator to say that they want more open markets and they want choices and they want EV charging, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's the lever that we're pulling on, right, is can we engage customers to make this change happen faster? And that was sort of the core insight and idea.
0: What was the original business model for Arcadia?
2: Yeah, it hasn't really changed since the beginning. I would say the way we monetize has evolved. But from day one, the idea was we were going to build software to manage the thing that almost everyone does in America, as my COO, Kate Henningsen, likes to say – death, taxes, and power bills. It's the three things that we will all have uh, for our entire lives. So we wanted to take over that behavior and that thing that everyone does, which is pay a power bill. And the financial connectivity was super important. It was sticky. It allowed us to deliver new products. But the data that we could pull out of the account, how you were using energy, whether you were moving or not, did you pay your power bill on time? All those things were incredibly important. And so we built technology to, to basically disintermediate the utility and the first and manage that bill and you know ingest that data, and the first product we monetized was a renewable energy certificate. It was a very simple, you know, it's not commodity in the traditional sense, but it is a sort of you know paper offset in some respects that you could buy and retire. And this is what the Fortune 1000 were using to to claim clean energy, right? And so that was sort of the first way we monetized the platform, and it was. Incredibly exciting because we had customers everywhere in all 50 states. And I think one of the most important decisions we made early on in, a com- in the company's history was, you know, we weren't just going to focus on pg and uh, We weren't just going to focus on uh, Con Edison. We built it for Louisville Gas and Electric and Entergy and, uh, you know, every major investor owned utility. And uh, I'm so happy we made that decision because the breadth of our network I think is what makes us so valuable today. But we were able to give customers in Georgia and Tennessee and Kentucky access to renewables when they just never had any options. And that is something I'm really proud of.
0: Coming up, Kieran gets an investor to write a check. Then he gets a very uncomfortable call at the airport. First, a word about our partners. What It Takes is sponsored by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, we heard from Caroline Gollin, Global Head of Energy Markets and Policy at Google.
1: My job is to coordinate all of our our global strategy with our local execution.
0: Google wants to decarbonize the world's grids. Cheap, zero-carbon energy is making that possible. But we can't do it without rethinking the policies that
1: guide electricity markets. It's about fundamentally committing to the changes in the policies and the marketplaces that we need to make sure that everyone can have access to clean energy.
0: Caroline sees four critical areas where policy needs to change.
1: The first thing we need is is major market reform.
0: That means expanding large regional wholesale markets and creating market signals that allow all forms of clean energy to compete. The next is reforming the way we approve and build transmission lines.
1: We have some of the most advanced and critical infrastructure in the world, and our grids can't talk to each other.
0: The third is data transparency.
1: We need to be able to access our data. We need better analytics around the grid.
0: And the fourth is promoting new zero carbon tech through government incentives and R&D.
1: To really invest in those next generation technologies, they're gonna be critical to go to zero.
0: Google is working with policymakers, regulators, and other companies to reform our grid policies to make 24 seven carbon free energy possible everywhere.
1: That's what gets me excited about this industry is that every year, I see the bigger problems, the more complex problems, and I see the number of actors working on them growing.
0: If you want to get inspired by the challenge of getting 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by Next Tracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, NextTracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker's technology helps developers lower their costs and boost energy yields. Next Tracker is also committed to increasing diversity within our solar workforce. Working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, Next Tracker is educating and training the next generation of clean tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about Next Tracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. What was the most difficult? thing about getting Arcadia off the ground when you were getting started?
2: I mean, there were so, so many things about going and trying to build software on top of an incumbent. You know, first of all, people just didn't really understand what we were doing. So when we were fundraising, they there were still so many people that were like, oh, but the power bill, it works. And I'm like, no, it's dirty. Actually, yes, the lights might come on, but it's 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 uh polluting our air and water and so there was still back then and i i think it's changed dramatically but like the people didn't really understand that value proper that consumer that would actually want that i think second uh, something that still persists to this day is the data in this um sector is so siloed and and stovepiped right like the data we can get from a customer in Florida power and lights territory versus a customer. In Con Edison is so dramatically different. Some of them have smart meters, some of them don't. Some of them have smart meters and it's not even published to the consumer. There's just so much variation. And we still deal with this today. The data can be really ugly. It It can be riddled with errors. And that's part of what we do is we normalize this data because we have data points across the entire country. But that was really, I think there were times in the early days where, you know, we'd look at bills and they wouldn't make sense. We had utilities that were billing on, like, sometimes they'd bill on a 30-day cycle, then they just decide to do 48 days. And it, it, these, there were so many of these issues that we've had to normalize. And in the early days, I remember thinking it would be, like, maybe an existential problem that the data is so, you know, so poor.
0: I can imagine that challenge may have contributed to it being difficult to raise capital, especially in 2013, 2014, when you were out raising your seed round. It was at a time when venture capitalists were pulling back in a pretty extreme way from the industry. What was your experience like raising that $400,000 seed round?
2: Yeah, it wasn't easy. I think we've been blessed in our history to have some investors with real conviction Dustin Rosen at Wonder Ventures wrote one of the first checks with Tom McInerney. And they, you know, that was like a PowerPoint and an idea. And so we really struggled. Actually, there was a friends and family round that was about 250K. And I remember just talking to so many people and, you know, getting all this pushback or you can't build this or no one's going to go for it or the long term vision that I was selling, which was sort of all energy services wrapped into a single bill you know, some people can wrap their heads around. And so I had very little circle. And I remember one of my friends from college uh, worked at a big bank and was like, hey, uh, so-and-so at our bank, um, who is like the head energy banker who's like one away from the CEO, he will take a meeting with you if you can make it to New York. And I was like, 100%, I'll be there. I'll, um, and I did it and it was, uh, it was an incredible meeting He seemed to just get it in a way that I think he, you know, for someone who'd been around utilities for decades, sort of understood what we were going after. And it was amazing. He was willing to write a a 200K check and I could take that and go circle. So I went to San Francisco, spent more time in New York and had circled up to 400K around this one individual. And I remember being on a plane, just amped, right? Like I, like, you know. I had all the okay. money in the like, world. I'm doing this. Yeah. Like, yeah, like rich. every founder tells <laughs> themselves, like, this is the only money I'll ever need. Um, <laughs> yeah. One yeah. around. One and, and um, I remember being literally on the plane coming back. And I get a call from him. He was like, Kieran, have you heard of Dodd-Frank? I was like.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Yeah.
2: I, yes, I know. I read the newspaper. I know Dodd-Frank. And he went on to say that, you know, basically there would be some issues with his compliance department because of how... The deal was sourced through a friend and that he wouldn't be able to invest. And it was like the worst plane flight because I just knew so many people had operated sort of as lemmings, right? (laughs) Like, oh, he's investing? Like, I'm going to invest. And I would have to go back to all of them and tell them, actually, this person's not uh, and fill a gap. And it was just one of, I mean, you know, a couple of really painful weeks of trying to figure out you know i had, at that point we i think made job offers to people like it was oh, wow. yeah it wasn't yeah. it wasn't good a couple of weeks later i got a call and it was completely out of the blue and it was an angel investor he he he'd said hey i you know was so-and-so uh and we can keep the names out of this so-and-so <laughs> um you know I angel invest broadly in the in x y and z companies which were some big name companies I've heard about what you're doing. I think it's fascinating. I'd love to hear the pitch. I was like, fine. I've done this 300 times, now. I'll do it again. And it was like a 10-minute pitch, maybe one or two questions, and he was like, "Great, I'm in for 250k. Like, let me know, <laughs> let me know what next steps are." And you know, to this day, I've never actually put put the pieces together nor asked anyone anything, but um, and that investor has been an incredible investor, the new one, um, in the years since. But it was just this like amazing sort of save for the company. Because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't actually know if we would have made it, we would have raised the money. I might have given up. Um, and, uh, and look, since then, we've actually, I think, been pretty blessed with some incredible investors. Um, Adam Rothenberg at Box Group helped lead the seed round and set a price on the round when no one else would. Um, Samir Reddy at EIP, I think has maybe had the most influence on the company and the company's mm-hmm. trajectory, uh, mm-hmm. really helped during some tough times thinking about how, how we get through, you know, bridge rounds, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So.
0: And you just closed a round. Is that right?
2: We did. You know, we just closed a hundred million dollar series D, um, led by. Congratulations. Thank a you. long way from that. $250,000 check. It's unreal. Uh, and it's so exciting. Tiger and the Drawdown Fund, Wellington's new climate fund, and all of our existing investors. Yeah, it it's hard to remember those days <laughs> begging for 10K checks. But yeah, it's an amazing sort of moment in the company's history of, of sort of how far we've come. But like, you know, like the same tailwinds, uh, even when I was on Capitol Hill, right? I mean, these are the two biggest markets, I think, in modern... Uh, in the modern economy is sustainability and software. And I think the TAM is only getting bigger for what we're working on.
0: Couldn't agree more. What was your financial life like while you were raising that, either the friends and family or the the seed round?
2: Yeah, it wasn't great. So there wasn't a uh, a ton that came out of American Efficient. And I had lived on credit card debt at various points you know, you make nothing on Capitol Hill. Like there were many nights I would go get 10 cent wings down the street from the Cannon office building or eat free at a, at a lobbyist event, because you just had to, I think I was getting... Uh, and and throughout, you know, writing a book or thinking about starting American Efficient or uh, thinking about starting Arcadia, there were times where uh, I played really loose with my own personal finances without a doubt grew up with with some privilege like my father was a doctor and um, but they didn't really aside paying for college they didn't really believe in you know helping beyond that uh mm-hmm, like my mm-hmm, life was same. my own at that point right mm-hmm. uh which which is true and i believed in and mm. you know there were there was a time when my wife and i bought our first house and we had really never it was never a thing and maybe gen z does this today where they pull up their credit scores and share oh it with yeah each first other. date yeah uh, that didn't happen between me and Sarah and so there was a moment where we were like, okay, cool, we're gonna do this and i had actually saved up some money um, responsibly, but my credit score was horrible. And I don't think I even really knew. Um, I had like one credit card. And it was, it was just this realization that I, and Sarah was obviously uh, amazing about it. She understood, um, you know, that I had been taking risks and mm-hmm. uh, doing this for a while, but those times weren't easy, uh and it's scary to be in debt uh, or to be very close to you know not being able to pay rent,
0: yeah, absolutely. of the rounds you've raised from the the family and friends to the d that you just closed, has it gotten easier or harder to raise capital?
2: It, it's gotten easier i mean the every stage of this company we've seemed to uncover unlock a bigger market in a bigger market, and I'd be lying to you if I said you know, when we started the business and we we're selling recs that I knew we would have, you know, 500 megawatts of community solar, right? In a lot of ways, this the, our timing has been so good. I mean, we community solar, when I started the business was, I think, in, in Denver and, you know, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And it's now in 17, you know, moving to 18, 19 states. It's such a fast pace. It's one of the fastest competitive energy trends in the U.S., and we just happened to be in the moment with the right product cuz we owned billing and we could understand data and we had something really unique to bring to the customer and as we get more into we're developing products for specifically for an EV customer for customers with you know smart products behind the meter and in the home and you know i had these ideas when we started the business i knew that if i had the bill and data that there was that was the platform to to you know launch into all sorts of energy services but it was hard to predict. So, I mean, to your question, like it got easier because I think the TAM grew, the The market and the unbundling of the market is happening at a faster pace. And frankly, like we were, we had just been building so much value. Uh, we've been growing our customer base also, growing revenues, but the value in the data and the billing system, I think is paramount. And that moat, uh, I mm-hmm. think is, is, you know, been the reason we've been able to raise more and more capital.
0: It sounds like Arcadia, you were ahead of the market when you were fundraising and a lot of people just didn't get it, but the market has since caught up. And and now what Arcadia is doing and where the market is feels pretty well aligned.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I know you, you asked the question about you know what it takes, right? And I think for a lot of startups, it's timing. Like you can have the best idea, but if the market or the customer is not ready then obviously your product's not going to work. But I think our timing has been kind of perfect. Like people understand that they want options. They want access to cleaner, cheaper energy. Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways, our timing's just been really uh, fortunate.
0: Some utilities thought your timing was not fortunate. You got a cease and desist letter from a utility early on. Did that deter you or did that lead you to believe that you were onto something? You're like, oh, they're coming after me. Yeah, we're, we're doing something right.
2: Yeah, it was one of those things where outwardly to the team, I was like, yes, frame it, put it on the wall. We're doing something right. And then internally, I was yeah, you know, kind of terrified. Like, obviously, yeah. these are <laughs> these are large incumbents, right, with a lot of power, figuratively, literally.
0: Looking at the, the present and the future of Arcadia, what is different about the company today compared to when you started in 2014?
2: I actually think the ambitions have just gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. There is an amazing opportunity to sort of recreate what a home energy relationship is with a consumer, you know, away from sort of my mother's conception of the power company and the utility to something much more customer centric, responsive, that fits your values around, you know, clean, pollution free energy. And so I think that was always part of the pitch. but in the early days, but even maybe I didn't fully <laughs> understand where we would end up or what what was capable and possible. And I just think the ambitions have grown uh, as they should because we have we have a huge crisis that needs to be solved.
0: Couldn't agree more. Uh, looking back on your time leading Arcadia since 2014, what has been the single best day?
2: One of the things I'm most proud of is in the immediate aftermath of COVID, a Slack was going around about what can we do? What can we do? People were talking about You know, job losses, not being able to pay bills. Just what could we do for our customers and our members? And uh, there was an idea that popped up to say, you know, we've always talked about doing peer-to-peer payments. Um, We have the infrastructure to do it, but this is the time when it really makes sense, can really make a difference. And so we spun up a program. We called it our Good Energy Program. In a matter of days, where we were able to raise a quarter million dollars from existing customers to help pay power bills for other customers who couldn't or were struggling. And I just, that was just such a proud moment that this company that I cared so deeply about and started and could do things like that and still move fast and and things so meaningful to our customers. So that was a really amazing moment. Mm
0: -hmm. What was the single worst day?
2: There's been a lot of tough days. Um, You know, one of the things that I I maybe regret the most about this journey is uh, I started the company with a co-founder who's a close friend. And, you know, I think like a lot of co-founders, we lacked a lot of the the necessary sort of communication around, you know, outcomes and what we wanted out of the job and the journey. And, uh, and, you know, he's no longer with the company, but I think not being able to have the right relationship going into a a co-founder relationship into starting a company was um, pretty tough.
0: Based on that experience, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who either are starting a company with a co-founder or who have had your experience of recently parting ways with a co-founder?
2: Yeah, I just think being very upfront and honest about expectations and outcomes, right? This is, it is a marriage, right? (laughs) As a lot of people say, but it's also, it can be a very long journey. Right. I mean, I mean, most startups that persist, right? It's it is a long journey, and there's lots of ups and downs. And I think just having like a clear sense of, you know, what roles do you want to play, what outcomes are you hoping to get, and you know, what do you want out of the journey? I think those are really important, and I think they're really hard conversations to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Everyone who we've had on What It Takes has been within months. Weeks, days, or hours of shutting their doors? How close has Arcadia
2: come? It's definitely been weeks. I mean, we we always, and it's always incredibly scary, even when it's months, mm-hmm. right, um, or quarters. You know, I think we've always kept an eye on cash balance and runway, but there was definitely a time, actually right around the, the Series A, where um, it got... You know, we were starting to tell vendors, hey, we might pay you a little late, mm-hmm. um, those type of things. So, But it, it never was sort of down to the wire days, thank- thankfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you said weeks. Yeah, definitely weeks. Uh, <laughs> weeks where, you know, we do daily planning about what if scenarios. But I, I know founders who've been much closer to, you know, significant layoffs and things like that. And luckily we haven't.
0: How has your leadership style changed as the company has grown?
2: I think like a lot of founders early on, I might've been a bit more micromanaging. I mean, as a founder, you have like sort of a a sense of what you want to do, what you want to put out in the world, how it should look and feel and interact with customers. And I think now I'm much more (laughs) hands-off and trusting, right? We have incredible people at the company and, um, who know their job much better than I do. And so I think that's been maybe the biggest uh, change in sort of how my day-to-day and how I operated the company.
0: Mm-hmm. What lesson has taken you the longest to learn?
2: I think patience. I think like a lot of millennials, we <laughs> late millennials like I am, we, uh, <laughs> we expect things uh, to happen quickly. And You know, this is also as much as I talk about the speed of the unbundling and what's happening in the sector, it still tends to move pretty slow. Right. And regulations uh, don't always move as fast as you hope they do. Uh, And so I think that patience to let the market develop is something that I've had to really learn.
0: You talked about your wife and uh, your Experience having to reveal your credit score as part of buying your house. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning your kids destroying the mic. Um, uh, what has it been like being a partner to your wife, a parent to your kids, a founder and CEO all at the same time?
2: It's a question to ask Sarah. I know she, like any partner of founders or CEOs, like has gone through all of the roller coaster that I have side by side. And I'm so lucky and grateful to have her there with me. I think, you know, we've had a really exciting past few years at the company have also had two kids in the last three years and one, uh, a COVID baby. And, you know, in some ways Sarah and I were talking about if you could choose, which, you know, is if you could choose the best time to have a child, actually COVID was an amazing time because I was home. We could be home. We could be together, have a new normal. And that was really special, but, you know, Sarah has sort of been on the executive team in Shadow <laughs> since the beginning, you know, with opinions uh, and thoughts and constructive criticisms, which have been so helpful over the years.
0: Um, what does Arcadia look like in five years, and how is Arcadia contributing to that carbon-free future in that time?
2: Yeah, I think we actually have an opportunity to enable what I think is 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 hundreds, maybe thousands of mini. Utilities, mini energy services, right? And so using the tools we have, data, billing, we've already been able to manage, you know, half a gigawatt of community solar, and this is cheaper, cleaner energy for people who can't put it on their roof, right? It is It is actually a pretty radical idea in terms of a new energy service for the consumer um, that's virtual, it's cheaper than the incumbent. And I think with storage, with solar, with EVs, we're gonna have this opportunity in the coming years where everyone can sort of build a home energy service. And we wanna be the tools and the platform to help them do that. So there's there's a lot of exciting stuff there. I think community solar can be bigger than rooftop solar. It makes a lot more sense at the end of the day for the grid. And frankly, there's two-thirds of Americans who can never put a power plant on their roof. And so I think uh, us as Arcadia, like we don't ever want to own assets, we don't ever want to be um, a developer but being that software layer to allow a car company to uh, sell clean energy alongside their ev uh, etc like those are really exciting opportunities
0: we are going to move into our high voltage round as you know these are quick questions quick answers starting with karen if you were going to be an animal what animal would you be and why
2: so i would be an elephant you know they just they just strike me as extremely thoughtful, caring, family-oriented, tough to take down. Um, <laughs> and, you know, brown people have an affinity for, for elephants. I've, I've seen them my whole life. So, um, <laughs> yeah.
0: Love it. That, that is mine as well. Um,
2: what inspires you? My team. The work they do pushing this organization and and building new products and innovation in a sector where there's not a ton, uh, there hasn't been a ton. It's just really exciting to see. If you had
0: to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: I'd be a writer. Um, It may have been a very painful experience, but I will say like putting that product out in the world, I think was, is still so meaningful to me. And at the time I also had this idea that, you know, people who write artists, writers, they shift culture that can shift mm-hmm. you know our world and how we how we operate and so i think it's really meaningful and if i was maybe better at it uh, <laughs> i'd be doing it
0: other than yourself to whom do you attribute your success
2: my father he, he you know like a lot of immigrants they're basically op- entrepreneurs themselves which would have never thought of it. I had a conversation with him recently, which I just never put together that, you know, he had his own private practice as well. And like, that was like a company. He had to like do marketing, right? <laughs> and, like all these things we just never spoke of, but he is just the hardest working individual I know. And it's just incredibly inspiring to see what he's done in his life and what he continues to try uh, new things and do.
0: When have you failed?
2: Uh, like four or five times a week uh, on average. But I would say, like, I think every founder fails a few times over. I think, like I was saying earlier, like not being able to manage the co-founder relationship uh, well was a big failure. Early on, we could have done a lot more to push around data with more active engagement with regulators and utilities around smart meter data. And so, you know, it's almost a scandal how much how many dollars taxpayers have put into the smart meters that have been installed in homes, but the lack of like fidelity or access to that data to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's something we're working on now, but uh, something I kind of wish we would have done from day one.
0: What's the best investment you've ever made?
2: Uh, on a personal level, it's my partner and Sarah. And she's just been such a rock. I was the first investor in a company called App Harvest that's building the largest greenhouses in the world, uh, indoor greenhouses. And I, I think of it actually as a climate investment. How do we feed the world and do it with 90% less water, without pesticides, You know, using renewable energy? <laughs> it's a super exciting company based in Kentucky um, that I'm really, really proud of.
0: What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: I think related to energy, I was one of these people that was really anti-nuclear for a long time when I was working in Congress and beyond. But I am I think today fully understand the need to have, you know, a technology we already have that could help us decarbonize faster that, you know, needs to exist, whether it's small, modular, nuclear. But as I think you've seen recently, like once a nuclear plant goes down, the carbon emissions skyrocket, right? And so uh, I think I've, I've really changed sort of my mind on, what the grid mix could look like, uh, in a hundred percent clean future.
0: When are you your best self?
2: On the weekends with my kids where I really try to put the phone away and shut down and just be with them where their, their world is, you know, they know nothing about what daddy does. Right. They, and they, and they may not because their memories don't really get made until six, seven, eight, and they're still three and one. And so it's really just a special, almost alternate world that it can be in with my kids. What is your worst trait? I think it's that lack of patience, whether it's, you know, us shipping product or how fast the market's moving, uh, something that I think I've had to work on is patience.
0: If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: I think there's just a lot of cynicism right now. I feel like we've been we've been able to accomplish so much as a country because we're go through, you know, we we have incredibly hopeful cultural moments and I just feel like we're especially in the climate world there's just a ton of cynicism that we can't get out of the mess that we're in i think it's an easy thing to fall back into but constantly battling that cynicism and being more hopeful about our futures
0: if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast who would you want it to be my dad what is your best quality
2: i think I have a, and this may be because I was, grew up a brown kid in Pikeville, an amazing uh, ability to relate to people relatively quickly and sort of understand where they're coming from. I gonna you know, empathy. I think I have a lot of empathy for different people's plights and where they're coming from.
0: Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because.
2: Timing. I think timing can be everything.
0: If you really knew me, you would know.
2: I love country music. Um, <laughs> And a lot of people can't believe that I am a huge fan of late eighties, early nineties country. And then more recently, Sturgill Simpson, Tyler Childers, those type of folks. Success is? In the eye of the beholder. Success should be thinking about something bigger than yourself and that's maybe most important.
0: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have.
2: I would have raised a lot more money. Yeah earlier in the company's life cycle because of all of the opportunity we have in front of us.
0: Mm. Do you think you could have?
2: I think at the series A and B we, we definitely could have.
0: Got it. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be.
2: Spending my life, trying to make a dent in the universe.
0: I'm most proud of my family. Last question to build a successful startup. What it takes is
2: amazing people, um, and a lot of luck.
0: awesome Kieran this concludes this episode of What It Takes thank you so much for joining really admire you and what you're building and just appreciate you joining us
2: thank you so much I I feel the same way about you and Powerhouse
0: Kieran Batraju is the founder and CEO of Arcadia Join us for news stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. Before you go, would you take a few seconds to leave us a review? We read all the reviews, and we will select our favorite of the new reviews to read on our next episode. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more about Powerhouse at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhousef and follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse and at Emily Kirsch. Also, we are hiring. We're looking for a vice president, a head of business development, and an innovation analyst for our innovation firm. To learn more, you can go to powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Dalvin Abawaji, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed our episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.